If you haven't already turned in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, please do so now. If this is your first time with us, we are in the middle of a series walking through the first book of the Bible, through Genesis. Moving chapter by chapter, and we find ourselves today in chapter 3, verse 8 and following. If you are new to us, my name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the pastors here at the church. I would love to meet you after the service. I'll be down at the front. And I'd also encourage you to take some time today to look through the bulletin. You can hear more about what's happening in the life of our church. And if you could fill out the welcome page on the back, you can hand that to me or take that to our connections table as you leave today. But I do want to tell you about two quick things before we approach his word. First, if you're a lady in this congregation, whether you've been here one day or three and a half years since we started, You'll be especially interested in our training event this afternoon. It'll be behind Limeridian Hotel in Garhood from 4 to 7 p.m. It'll be our third installment of Women in the Word. And even if you missed the last two, maybe you're new, you can jump right in to this meeting uh, today. And in all honesty, I can't think of anything more important than a person learning how to study God's Word and then taking that Word to someone else and encouraging them. So if you're a lady in our church, join us today at 4 p.m., and enjoy some sweet fellowship together. If you have any questions, Leanne Stiles will be up at the front as well after the service, and she can answer any of those questions, but we'd love uh, to have you there. Also, just a reminder, we started our next round of Redeemer classes this morning. Uh, We went ahead and did just two classes for a couple reasons instead of three, but but the two classes are What is a Healthy Church, which is our class that's required for membership, and that's in this room. And then our second class is Christianity Explained, which is out in the foyer out there. Actually, backwards, sorry, out in the foyer is the membership class. And in here is Christianity Explained. And this will be a great class for you to learn fundamentals of the Christian faith. Uh, Whether you're seeking, maybe you're not a believer and you want to learn more about this Jesus that we preach of, it'll be a good place for you to go. Or if you're a believer, you've been a member for years, this will give you some more tools uh, to then take this material and then to teach others about Christ. So please choose one of those classes and join us next Friday at 9 a.m. One, one other thing before we approach the Lord in prayer and then go to the word. As Mac prayed, I had a sweet opportunity to go to meet His Highness Sheikh Hamdan last night. It was a last-minute meeting with just two other pastors. And we were able to sit in his personal palace and get to spend time talking with him. And I personally was able to spend a few minutes thanking him for letting us do this. I was able to tell him about you, to tell him about Redeemer, to tell him about what we're doing in Dira more specifically. Then I was able just to thank him for allowing us to practice our religion, practice our faith as we do here uh, in Dira weekly and then throughout the week as we gather uh, together. I thanked him for uh, Dubai and for what they're doing here. And I told him that, that my prayer is that we would even be able to reciprocate that grace that he's shown us, even in some small measure to him. We told him that we pray for him regularly. Uh, and for the, those in the ruler's court. And so it was just a sweet meeting. It wasn't planned. God, in his sovereign grace, provided that uh, inroad for me and two other pastors. And so praise God uh, as you go to prayer this week uh, for that meeting. And let's continue to pray that the gospel would run wild here in Dubai, that many would come to faith. And as relationships are built uh, between us and others in this country, including the royal family, uh, that he would be honored and that his fame would go forth. Well, as we approach God's word, let us go to prayer. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as you speak to us through your word this morning, that we would actually hear it. 
Father, that our hearts would be open to your instruction and guidance. Father, that it would not just go in one ear, out the other, and then we leave and go to lunch, but would it transform our lives? Would it transform our marriages? Transform our families, the workplace, the neighborhoods? Would it transform this city? Oh, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Genesis that we've been going through is not fairy tale. It's not myth. It's also not simply a collection of different stories. The Bible, the book of Genesis included, is the word of God. And so we can say that once upon a time, these stories actually did happen. This is history. This is truth. These things actually took place. Well, as we move through the book of Genesis, we're not treating each section then as a series of isolated stories meant to give us some life lessons, how to be a better person. No, that's not what the Bible's all about. The Bible's one story, it's one storyline from the book of Genesis on to the book of Revelation. It's a story that tells us what sin is, who humans are, what is wrong with the human race and the world, and about God's plan of redemption and how it will come to fruition. Well, so far in our study, we've looked at the beginning of the world. We've seen that God was always there, that he stood on the other side of start. He was there in eternity past and will be there in eternity future. And he created this whole world and everything in it. From the sun to the very last butterfly was created by him. And that he made man, he made woman, and he made us in his image to be in fellowship with him. And he put the first two humans, Adam and Eve, in a garden. They were to enjoy perfect fellowship with God and with one another. They were given a lavish buffet, gourmet food on tree after tree. God had furnished this garden with everything they would ever need. There's no trouble, no anxiety, no worry, no sin. There were so many things to enjoy and just one prohibition. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now that tree was a test. A good test. God wanted them to find their satisfaction in his provision. He wanted them to learn that true joy came in him alone. But man disobeyed God as we saw last week. They took of the tree and they ate. And we ended last week with the man and his wife seeing their shame for the first time and trying to cover up their nakedness with a couple of fig leaves. Well, today we'll see what happens when God comes to them. What does God do when he comes walking in the garden to Adam and Eve? And you may be surprised at how God responds to them. If you're reading the Bible for the first time and you've been tracking with us through Genesis, you may be surprised with what you see. And we'll see three things that form our outline this morning as we walk through the text. We'll see first a confrontation of sin. Second, we'll see the consequences of sin. Then finally, we'll see the cure for sin. So confrontation, consequences, and finally, we'll see that there is a cure for sin. Well, first, there's a confrontation. Verse 8. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And in that verse, we have two of the saddest words in the Bible. They heard and they hid. They heard and they hid. Now this description of the Lord coming to them in walking is a Hebrew idiom. It doesn't just refer to walking, but it also has the idea of walking with somebody. To walk with God has the idea of fellowship, of intimacy. To walk with God means being friends with God. And it seems that this was the regular practice that God would come by. And as they heard God coming that morning, on this occasion, they hid themselves from God. See, the first root of sin is to be cut off from God. There's the sense that you are not right, and their impulse in this situation in the garden was to hide from God. And so God calls out in the, in the next verse to Adam, where are you? Now, W.A. Criswell, an old pastor, uh, once said that this is the first act of mercy in the Bible. I mean, what could have God done? I mean, he could have come to them and just destroyed them. Could have come to them and just killed them right there. But he calls to them. God seeks them. God comes to them. God's always the one initiating. Now, this doesn't mean that God didn't know where they are, right? God knew. He wanted them to come out. God always knows. We see in Psalm 139 and hundreds of other places. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Notice we see even in the book of Jonah that the prophet attempts to run from God. He attempts to hide from God. He's given a task to go to one place, to go to Nineveh to preach the good news of deliverance. And instead he goes the opposite direction. And God sees. God knows what he's doing. And he sends a big fish to swallow Jonah, spit him out into safety and to get him to go to the right place. Now it's futile to flee from the presence of God. Now it's like when I, when my two-year-old and I play the game of hide and seek, right? And he keeps going to the same closet over and over and over again. And even then the suspense of the hunt, it kills him. And so from the closet, he shouts out, I'm in the closet, dad, come get me. I mean, that's how it is when we try to hide from God. I mean, he knows the sovereign God of the universe. You can't run. You can't hide. You can't escape his gaze. He sees. So God asked the question. Adam answers and says, well, we were afraid because we were naked and so we hid. And so in verse 11, God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, Let me just pause here for a minute. See, Adam has a choice. It's a choice as he's confronted by God. It's the same choice that all of us have when we are confronted with our sin. He could have thrown himself on the grace of God. He could have admitted that he was a sinner. Now, is this what Adam does? No. No, he says, God... You know how women are, don't you? You know what they're like. I mean, you made her. 
women. It was the woman you gave me. Right? You thought it was such a good idea. And now look at what happened. Well, maybe I was better off alone. Some helper, huh, God? Well, Adam tells God, she made me do it. That's what he says. He's talking to the holy God of the universe, and he's saying to him, look over there at my wife. She's the one you're really looking for. Well, friends, this is really the definition of sin, or at least the description of sin. Sin is the willingness to throw someone or something under the bus to justify yourself. That's what Adam does. Instead of owning up to his sin, he says, hey, look at that woman over there. She did it. You made her, so actually, you did it. Sin is to feel superior to other people. It's to exploit other people. That's amazing because at the end of chapter 2, remember Adam responds with enthusiastic glee. He had finally found who he had always been looking for. Now, I admitted a couple times ago, it wasn't a very long life for Adam at this point. But after naming the ostriches and the camels and every other animal on the face of the earth, he sets his eyes on the woman. And immediately upon seeing her, he bursts into song. Ready? He writes the first piece of art in the Bible. He proclaims this poem about how wonderful his bride is. He couldn't have been happier. But now, all of a sudden, chapter 3, his tone changes. He says, God, that good gift you gave me was actually malicious. She's evil, you're evil. It's actually not very good. That woman you made, she was a mistake. Now, husbands, what would you do if a man came into your house, broke into your house, and came to attack your wife. I would think that all of us would fight to the death to protect our wife. We would fight this man or this intruder and protect our wife from them. But what if instead the attacker came in with silent treatment? Harsh words, anger, passivity, blame... What if that attacker was you? See, friends, Adam failed to lead his wife. At the end of the day, yes, Eve sinned. But there's a reason that throughout the Bible, this sin is referred to as the sin of Adam. He was supposed to play the role of heart protector to his wife. He was supposed to stand up against the schemes of the devil. He was to stand up for his wife. He was to shield her from danger. But instead, he invited passivity to enter into the marriage, and he followed her lead. Now, married men, I know of no other thing that's destroying marriages at a more rapid rate than passive men. Men who fail to leave their wives spiritually. Men who fail to leave their wives emotionally and physically. See, when the devil came to Eve, what was Adam doing? Nothing. He was doing nothing. In fact, though, back in verse 6, 
we saw one of the most incriminating phrases in Genesis. We saw that the man was with her. He wasn't in another part of the garden. He wasn't building something, drilling something, grilling something, lifting something. I mean, he was right there with her. He was with her in the garden, and he did nothing. I mean, eventually he ate with her. But he did nothing. Now, he had an opportunity to wash her with the word of God. He could have said, actually, that's not what God said. He could have rebuked the snake. He could have gotten rid of the snake, jumped on it. He could have stepped on its head. But Adam is just standing there. But friends, it's not just Adam's story. It's the same struggle for every man that has ever walked on the face of the earth. The Bible tells us in Romans 5 that Chris read for us earlier that just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Not all of us, men and women alike, we come into this world as a sinner. It's called the doctrine of original sin. Anybody with little children knows that you don't have to teach a toddler or a baby how to sin. They come pretty well acquainted with Satan's devices and schemes, even as a little child, even as a baby. Now, specifically, men tend to struggle with passivity. And often in regards to our families, this is seen most evident. We have a problem at home, but our desire, instead of fixing the problem, is to relax and put on our passive pants and just forget about it. Maybe hoping that it'll just go away. You know, we think we can just take our family on a holiday and everything will be resolved. Or we forget about our debt and think it'll magically be paid. Or we think, if I'll just go to a worship gathering on Fridays, maybe I'll go to a community group every once in a while, that that'll be enough to feed myself spiritually. But you fail to really feed your soul. No, men, we need to reject passivity in our homes. Now, it's astounding how creative and energetic we can be at work, isn't it? Leading and fixing and developing and inspiring and serving. We do this to great extent. But then as soon as we walk through the doors of our home, we instantly transform from leader Larry to slumbering Sammy. As if something magical happens in that doorpost. And as we walk in through that doorpost of our home, we just get zapped of all of our energy to lead. We kind of smirk and laugh a little bit because we know it's true. Men reject passivity. This is the story of Jesus' life, wasn't it? He was constantly pursuing time with the Father, time with other people. He was healing, he was teaching, he was encouraging, he was praying. He was always taking the initiative. That's really what true manhood is. It's taking initiative for the benefit of others. Starting with our wife, if we're married, and then extending to our children, and then to others in our life. Men, are you doing this in your home? Are you leading your wife spiritually? Are you speaking gospel truth in her life? Are you pointing her to Christ? 
I mean, do you ask how your wife is doing spiritually? Many people ask me, well, how do you lead your wife spiritually? I don't know how to do it. Well, friends, start with asking your wife how she's doing spiritually and then opening up about how you're doing spiritually and read some scripture and pray together. I mean, married man, are you sharing with her what you're learning from the Bible, about what God is teaching you? For those single women here this morning, you want a man who will lead you and protect you like Jesus. If the man you're interested in or the man that is pursuing you is passive now, I promise putting a ring on his finger isn't going to change that. Well, we see that our story, though, as we look back at Genesis, it only gets worse, doesn't it? So we see the man. But then God goes to the woman. And he asks her the same question. She doesn't do much better, does she? She says, well, the devil made me do it. Go talk to him. Now, what should the woman be doing? This is good for us to consider. Husband is passive, not following God, not leading. What should the woman be doing when her husband's not leading, not protecting her, not pointing her to God? What should she be doing in this instant? Well, she, could, she should have called out to God. That's what she should have done. She should have appealed to the authority over her husband. God, my husband is not defending me with the truth of your word. He's not leading our family. He's not fighting the dragon. He's not protecting our home. See, Eve, this woman, should have been calling out to God. God, help me. Instead, notice what she does. Instead of calling out to God, she steps up to lead her family. Oh, friends, sin has destroyed everything. In verse 7, men and women are hiding from each other. And then in verse 8, they're hiding from God. All relationships are now messed up. They can't trust each other. They're vulnerable to one another. And they find some fig leaves to cover it up. And this is really our story today. I mean, from this point forward, it's always been about fig leaves. We all try and cover up our sin and try to cover up our shame. Sometimes we blame God, or maybe we blame other people. We blame them for placing us in circumstances that we think are too much for us. And so as a student, maybe you cheat because your schedule is simply too difficult, or you might see a thief steal because they don't think they've had enough. Or a man commits adultery because a coworker gives him the attention that he feels he deserves. Or a woman commits adultery because this other man validates her, makes her feel nice and important. Or maybe you blame your hormones or your passions or your appetites or exquisite tastes or your loneliness. Or maybe you find some fig leaves to cover up your sin by blaming your victimhood. Your past. You start blaming your upbringing. You start blaming your parents. They didn't raise you right. You blame your culture. And you say, well, those things from my past, that's the reason I am what I am today. Because of those things. Or maybe you work to cover up your sin and inadequacies. 
See, when someone you're interested in romantically asks you out on a date, you notice much of the preparation is a form of cover-up. This person is coming up to pick you up at your place and take you out for dinner, and you realize that your place is a mess. Right? You don't want them to see how undisciplined you are. So what do you do? Either you meet them somewhere else, or you do the first deep cleaning you've done in 12 years. Clean the whole place. You stuff your closets full of stuff so that you can impress them. You get dressed in such a way that covers up any physical inadequacies. And at dinner, you take the conversation to things that you know about. You don't want them to know you haven't read a book since university, and so you try to guide the conversation. You begin to cover things up. Or maybe you pick up the biggest fig leaf of them all. It's called religion. You hide behind it. Well, if God can't see my sin, then it isn't really sin. You carry a Bible around, you quote a couple verses, you sing songs, you come to worship services, and you say, what? I don't really hurt anybody. And actually, see that guy over there? I'm actually holier than him. And you justify your sin by covering up your sin with your religious deeds. And you think, well, I'm not really that bad. But see, friends, all of these things are just as pathetic as trying to cover up your nakedness with a couple of fig leaves. See, when we read this text, we almost laugh at Adam and Eve and we say, you're ridiculous trying to use a couple of leaves. But friends, we do this every day. Now, the Genesis reality is really the New Testament reality. The book of James says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Oh, friends, we cannot blame God. We cannot blame anyone else. And we cannot blame the devil. Can't point to our religious activities. We have to own up to our sin. Now at this point, are Adam and Eve owning up to their sin? Are they repentant? Or are they merely remorseful? Sad? Now this is a really important question. See, repentance is grieving over the pain of God. While remorse is just grieving over the pain of you. You're upset over the consequences. Adam, what have you done? Well, I'm scared, God. I'm scared. See, instead of admitting sin, what Adam is doing is he's complaining about the consequence of his sin. We all do that. We hate the consequences of our sin. But see, in repentance, you're not looking at the consequence, but you're looking at the actual sin. You're looking at God. These are two very, very different things. You've got to get this this morning. See, in remorse, in sadness, you're grieving yourself. In repentance, you're grieving over what you've done to God. It's a huge difference. Repentance, you look at how much God gave to you and you look at what you've done to him. If it is just remorse, you're sorry for everything you've lost, but not God. So you're sorry about losing honor. Maybe you were caught in some sin and now everybody knows you were the one who 
committed adultery or is addicted to pornography or lied at work or maybe you're sorry because you've lost ease of life. You were fired from your job for something. Now you can't do this or buy that. So you're sorry. You're, you're sad. You're remorseful. Maybe you're, you're sad because you lost the relationship because your sin to your spouse or to a friend has now caused friction in the middle of that relationship. And you're sorry. You're sad because now things aren't all aligned in your life. And so you're remorseful. But see, in repentance, you're sorry for having lost communion with God. what repentance is. You'll say, well, I'll do anything to get rid of the consequences of sin. Well, I wonder how many people are simply coming to Jesus to alleviate their circumstances. That's what Adam and Eve do. But real repentance has an accurate knowledge of God's love and comes to him broken over the sin itself and the offense that it is. To God. Now at this point, Adam and Eve are not repentant. And we see that there are consequences to sin. That's the second point. If you're taking notes this morning, we've seen God confront them in their sin. We've seen remorse, not repentance. We've seen them not own up to it. We also see that there are consequences to our sin. That's the second point here. There's a pronouncement of judgment on the devil, there's a pronouncement of judgment on the man and the woman. Now, for the devil, we see, verse 14, the penalty is humiliation. And then in verse 15, penalty is a consequence of defeat. Now, eating dust is a common sign of defeat and frustration. And we'll come back to, to that defeat in the next point. Well, for the woman, the penalty is twofold. It involves her two most important human relationships, her husband and her children. First, in verse 16, she'll suffer increased pain in childbirth. The agony and suffering in birth would serve as a reminder of the fall every time a child comes into the world. Second, she'll also face defeat in her conflict with her husband. Now, the pair of words desire and rule over suggest that her desire will be to dominate. To love and to cherish becomes... A desire to rule. The woman will attempt to control her husband. While God has put the man as the head of the home in love and tenderness, there will be a desire for the woman to take the lead, and she'll be frustrated. Well, for the man, we're told that the consequence of sin will involve painful labor in work and defeat in his conflicts with nature. See, five times in these three verses, eating is mentioned. Man's offense consisted of eating a forbidden fruit, and now he's punished by having difficulty to produce food to eat. In many ways, the punishment would fit the crime. They sinned by eating, and they would suffer to eat. She led her husband to sin, and so she would be led by him. They brought pain into the world by their disobedience, and so they would have painful toil in their respected lives. No man is to cultivate the ground, but now we see something after the fall that now, instead of man being in charge, nature is in charge. You will toil with the dust, and in the end, who wins? Well, I read an article this week from a while back, written by a housewife. I think illustrates this well. She said that the main enemy of her life was dirt. 
She says, every day I face dirt in the diaper, dirt on the plate, dirt on the rug, dirt on the sheets, dirt, dirt, dirt. And she says, all of life, you start at one, one side of your house and then you clean all the way to the other side of your house. And once you get finished at the final end, you realize that it's dirty already in the beginning. And she says, what do you get at the end of your life for all this trouble? And she said, two more meters of dirt. And we were made from the dust of the ground. And Genesis 3.19 tells us that the consequence of sin is death, that we will return to the ground. You spend all your life fighting dirt and dirt wins. All death, disease, disaster is because nature is not our servant anymore. Physical death is a consequence of sin. God sends them out of the garden, no longer access to eat of the tree of life. They will at some point physically die. But even more than physical death, though, is the spiritual death that they and us face. See, Adam and Eve's story is really our story. I read earlier from Romans 5 that death has spread to all men because all have sinned. The wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2 says we were separated from Christ, alienated from him, having no hope and without God in the world. Jesus says of those who remain in Matthew 25 that they will go away into eternal punishment. It's not just physical death. There's a spiritual death, which is far worse. But the consequences of sin leaves us without God and facing judgment for all eternity. See, because God is perfectly just, the punishment must fit the crime. And so where is our hope? Our hope is that there is indeed a cure for sin. And friends, I hope that this encourages you today that there is a cure for sin. That's the third point that we see in the text this morning. There's a cure. You see, right there in verse 15, right in the center of this judgment, we see a glimmer of hope. We see the first glimmer of the gospel in the Bible. Verse 15, it's often called the Proto-Evangelion or the Proto-Gospel, the first mention of the gospel. Right here, Genesis 3. I mean, God is so eager to bless that even in the midst of judgment, he can't help but tell us about hope. I mean, it's interesting. Look at verse 15 closely. You see there, it's plural towards the beginning of the verse. Your offspring, her offspring. These are two groups of people, the children of God and the children of Satan, the seed of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent. And then all of a sudden, notice at the end of the verse, it moves from the plural down into the singular. And speaking of the servant, he says, he shall bruise your head and you will strike his heel. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, Derek Kidner, an Old Testament theologian, says that it's odd that a prophecy would talk about believers as the children of a woman. And one with his heel bruised would come from her, singular. I mean, it's strange, on the one hand, because genealogies always trace the descendants through the man. So why is the Savior to come, the one who will wrestle with Satan and crush him and destroy him? Why is this person called the seed of a woman? 
well, Kidner says, because in the whole history of the world, there's only one human being who is only the offspring of a woman. A virgin shall conceive without a man, and his name shall be Emmanuel. God is with us. See, the statement in Genesis is a prophecy about Jesus. He's going to destroy all the work of the serpent. See, the Bible starts with a garden. But then it proceeds to move to another garden with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. As the first man, Adam, turned away from God the Father in a garden, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the second Adam, turns to the Father in a garden. The first Adam is told, Obey me about the tree and you will live. But he didn't. But God comes to the second Adam and says, Obey me about the tree, this time a cross, and I will crush you. And he did. See, in the Garden of Eden, man was struggling with a command. Centuries later, Jesus is in a garden. He's struggling with a command for a tree, the wooden cross. He knows he must go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and he's struggling. I mean, back here with Adam and Eve, they were in a sunny garden with meager pressure. And God says to Adam and Eve, obey me, follow my commands, and you will live. But they didn't, and they dragged the whole human race into sin. But now in a dark garden under infinite pressure, God the Father says, obey me about this tree, and you will be crushed. And he did. He endured God's just punishment for our sins. He climbed the tree of death and turned it into a tree of life for you and for me. Why? Well, for God's glory and because he loves the Father and because he loves us. Because he'd rather lose himself than lose us. He lived a perfect life and at the end of his life, he did the greatest act of obedience in all of history. He took this curse. He took our curse and he gave us life. Now this is the great reversal. Humans put where only God deserves and God put where we deserve. The first humans ate of a tree. The first humans tried to hide among the trees and yet there was one who came to die on a tree. His name is Jesus. See, Adam and he passed the blame, and in reality, Jesus was the only one who really could do that, right? He really could point the finger. He really could say, well, this isn't my fault. He was the only person who could have said that and been absolutely 100% correct. And yet he was laying there on the cross, as Isaiah 53 says, silent. He was not guilty, and yet he didn't blame anyone. Friends, are you seeing what happened there on the cross? In Romans 4, Paul says, In Christ, your sins are covered. How does this happen? Well, at the end of the passage, God takes the man and the wife out of the garden. And he puts a sword, a flaming cherubim, there to guard the garden. A flaming sword. No one can come back in and live forever unless they go under the sword. You know, it represents the justice of God. Well, Isaiah says that when the Messiah comes, he will, he will be cut off from the land of the living. 
Now, Jesus went under the sword and opened a way back to the presence of God. The sword slew him, and the way to the presence of God is now open to all of us. There's no way back into the garden on our own. All attempts, good works, hiding from God, religious activities, being a good person, everything will ultimately bring death under that sword. It's all a futile attempt. But the Bible tells us there is a way. In Hebrews, the author tells us to draw near to Christ, having the boldness to enter into his holiness by a new and living way. His flesh. Let us draw near with full assurance. What is he saying? That there's a way opened up and it was through Christ's body. See, when Jesus died, what happened is that very sword fell on him and broke his body. But in breaking his body, the sword itself broke. The justice of God was broken and smothered by God himself. God sent his son to pay the penalty and it killed him. But see, it also killed itself. It broke him, but in breaking him, it broke. If you try to sneak in on your own, that flaming sword will get you. You can plot, you can strategize, you can try to see your good works outweigh your bad works. You can try praying special prayers, you can do any number of things, you can run really fast to get through that sword, but in the end you won't be able to get in, it'll kill you. No, someone is going to have to come in and destroy sin and destroy death and give you life. See, friends, what that first Adam should have done is he should have stomped on that snake. But friends, the second Adam will. The second man in the garden. Jesus had his heel broken on the cross, but Satan was crushed and ultimately defeated on the cross. Where Adam failed to kill the snake, Jesus crushed his head, devoured him. Now God provides a way. We see a further glimmer of hope. We see God provides for the man and his wife animal skins, covering. It points to the sacrificial system, which ultimately points to Jesus. That one would had one would be slain to cover their shame. But friends, to be saved, we see clearly in Mark 1 that one must repent and believe in him. To acknowledge and turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus to save you. Friend, if you've never done this today, I pray that this good news, this gospel message encourages you, convicts you, moves you to repentance and belief today. If you've never done this today, if you've never done this ever before, today is the day to do it. Today is the day to turn from him. It appears that at the end of our passage, this is what Adam and Eve do. You know, it's interesting. We see Adam names his wife Eve. In your community groups, did that catch you by surprise? Was that interesting when you thought about what the name Eve means? It means mother of the living. Well, she wasn't a mother at this point. They wouldn't have even known about birth at this point. Why would he call his wife this? Well, it looks like he believed in the promise. The promise was that God would declare war on evil and that there would be an offspring who comes out of the woman who would destroy evil. In fact, they so believed the promise that we'll see next week in chapter 4 that they they thought at first Cain might have been it. Then when Cain was born, Eve says in the Hebrew, I got him. He's here. They thought that maybe Cain was the one that God said would come. 
But they didn't know when God was talking about it, and she's giving birth to the son. Maybe, maybe he's the savior. They believed in the one to come who would save them from their sin. Oh, friend, place your faith in Christ. Place your faith in the one who has come, who has defeated death, who has conquered Satan, who gives you free life. Oh, friend, he is your only source of joy and satisfaction. He is the only one who can cover your shame. Those fig leaves that you use every day are going to fall apart. Only Jesus can cover your shame. Only Jesus can cover your guilt. Only he can give you life. Come to him. Stop hiding. Stop running. Now, perhaps God is calling you today. Come to him. You know, it's interesting. This is eventually what happened with a man by the name of John Newton, famous pastor in the UK. You know, in order to escape the conditions of his home as a teenager, Newton ran away to sea. He ran away to join the British Navy. He thought this would give him a better life, but being rebellious and the drunkard that he already was, he decided during his time in the ship to run away to Africa. And in his own words, he said, I'm going to Africa to sin in full, to find true joy. I'm just going to sin all I want down there. No one will know. And yet in Africa, he was cruelly enslaved. As a slave, he was treated like a dog. He even had to eat his food off a dusty floor, just like a dog would. Near the end of another voyage, he left there, found another ship, escaped, joined a a ship transporting slaves back to the UK. He was given a little job helping the captain. But even then, he broke down and broke into the ship's liquor cabinet and started passing out rum to the other sailors. He got drunk himself, and in a drunken stupor, Newton actually fell off the ship and began to drown. But it wasn't the end of his life. God was still after him, and a man took a spear and speared him with a harpoon in his leg to bring him back up out of the water. had a fist-sized scar in his thigh for the rest of his life. But he lived. Later on that same journey, Get this, the ship began to drown through treacherous storms and weather, and everybody was about to die. And in that depth of that ship, as Newton was drowning, finally these Bible verses that he remembered from when he was a kid came storming back into his mind, and he cried out to God. Not merely to save him physically, but he cried out to God to save him spiritually. He realized he was a sinner, that the physical death he was about to embrace was a picture of his spiritual death, and that he needed God. And he cried out to God to save him. And he saved the ship, saved him physically, saved him spiritually. And John Newton became one of the greatest teachers of the Bible in British history. And it was of this testimony of faith, of God searching for him, calling for him, finding him when Newton was running away. It was of this personal testimony that he wrote the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Though many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come, t'is grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Newton was a great preacher of grace. And it is no wonder, for he had been lost. 
He was a de- definition of trying to hide himself with fig leaves. But by the astounding grace of God in Christ, he had come to see. He understood that he had been hiding, running. He also understood that God had pursued him and came to bring him to himself. This amazing grace fueled Newton's joy. Oh, Christian friend, would this thought of God finding you, would the thought of that bring you joy today? Would the thought of Jesus dying on the tree of death, would it be the most thrilling and galvanizing thing for you today? Because the more you see the love of God in the gospel, the more you will repent of your sin instead of just being remorseful at the consequences. The more you see Christ's love for you on that tree, the more you can have hope regardless of your circumstances. Oh, friend, let this amazing grace transform your heart today. There is indeed power in the gospel. Let us pray together. Oh, Father, your grace is overwhelming to us. Oh, Father, as we look upon that tree of death that became a tree of life, we are overwhelmed. Your love for us is stunning. Your grace towards us is amazing. That you would go search for us when we were in the depths of death, just like you did for John Newton. That you found us, brought us to yourself, and you gave us life. We had rejected you. We were dead in our sin. We were living in our shame, trying our own religion, our own works, our own way. In a pathetic attempt to cover our shame. And yet you send Jesus, God in the flesh, to take our shame. Father, to live the life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we deserve to die. He took our sin. He took our shame. He took our guilt. Though while we were yet sinners... He came and died for us. Oh, Father, we praise you today. God, I know many of us come difficult circumstances today. Health, loneliness, strife, pain, persecution. Father, we pray as we meditate on your amazing grace now, in these next few minutes, through song. Would we be encouraged that though our ever-changing circumstances are just that, ever-changing, that the one great permanent circumstance is indeed Christ and the gospel, that it can never be taken away from us, that you will one day bring us home to meet our Savior and our King. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.